It is this spirit which can be found among many of you. It is this which is the hope of our nation. For it is not enough to allow dissent, we must demand it. For there is much to dissent from. We dissent from the fact that millions are trapped in poverty while the nation grows rich. We dissent from the conditions and hatreds which deny a full life to our fellow citizens because of the colour of their skin. We dissent from the monstrous absurdity of a world where nations stand poised to destroy one another and men must kill their fellow men. We dissent from the sight of most mankind living in poverty, stricken by disease, threatened by hunger and doomed to an early death after a life of unremitting labour. You are a generation which is coming of age, at one that the rarest moments in history, a time when all around us, the old order of things is crumbling and a new world society is painfully struggling to take shape. If you shrink from this struggle and its many difficulties, you will betray the trust which your own position forces upon you. Hi all, I'm Said Sadiq, a member of parliament, and that was a snippet from Robert F. Kennedy's address at the University of California, Berkeley in 1966. And today, you are listening to Seek to Speak, a podcast that aims to empower expressions, spark speeches, and instigate ideas. Seek to Speak. I'm Ayn Aisa and welcome to Season 2 of Seek to Speak. And with me today is YV Said Sadiq, Acting Member of Parliament for MUA and former Minister of Youth and Sports. Sadiq is also the co-founder of the Malaysian United Democratic Alliance, or MUDA for short, and was instrumental to the constitutional amendment that saw the lowering of voting age from 21 to 18 years old. But why he's the perfect guest for our show today is because he is an incredible youth advocate and a huge proponent of debate, discourse and critical thinking with all three yes he has done three of his TED talks championing the wonders of debating public speaking and how it can shape student activism we are so so lucky to have him on the show today welcome Sadiq how are you feeling I'm feeling good thank you very much Ayin for hosting me yeah it's a pleasure to have you here so without further ado we will go to segment one which is the guest guide this is where we'll guide our listeners through your journey behind being a speaker youth leader and political representative can you tell me a little bit about your journey and motivation behind becoming a youth advocate yeah uh, to be honest i in debating played a pivotal role in shaping my political career um i think i and you yourself debated quite a lot and, yeah. <laughs> and, and and you made Malaysia proud in many ways as well. But as debaters, you know, we are we feel very passionate arguing about important local and international issues. We debate about Palestine, we debate about the state of the Malaysian economy, uh, we debate about Europe and US politics, uh, and we feel very passionate talking about it. Um, but often the question then, how do we translate that passion into concrete action? How do we then translate that idealism so that it actually takes place in the real world? Um, so when I feel very passionate about debating, I wanted to take that idealism outside of that debate room so that that idealism can be translated into concrete policies. So debating acted as a precursor uh, for me to join politics because politics then uh, enabled me to realize my dreams of making Malaysia a more fairer, equitable, multiracial, moderate society. Um, and debating played a pivotal role uh, in doing so. Um, so in short, debating 
was pivotal in shaping how I move forward. And I hope that a lot more people, young ones, will pick up debating. Uh, it's not just about being able to speak fluently. It's about you becoming very empathetic to what happens in, in society, you wanting to shape Malaysia in the best way possible. Um, I think once more people do that, I'm very sure we will be able to progress better. Yeah, so even when you were talking about your Thunderbolt classes, right? You said debating taught you to become a global citizen, that when you speak passionately about justice reforms and politics in debate land, you also carry that idealism and passion in the real world. But let's look at the context of Malaysia, where people have varying degrees of sensitivities. How can we promote better discourse and discussions on important issues without offending or inciting hatred? Yeah, I think the first and most important thing is to listen a lot more. Um, and that's something which, um, again, may be tough for a debater to do. And we always <laughs> like we always like to speak. We like to be very aggressive. I think I, you know, when I debate, I get very aggressive as well. So I remember when I was transitioning from competitive debating to politics, uh, I had to change uh, a lot. Uh, and being young, to be honest, helped as well. Um, I listened a lot more. Um, I, I had mentors who were very kind to guide me forward. Um, so. Yeah, listening helps a lot. Uh, that makes you a lot more attentive. And at the same time, it shows that you're not as adversarial and combative, uh, which a, a competitive debater usually is. Yeah. Um, yeah, so moving forward from there, I think it's to engage in a lot more discourse in, in, in comparison to debating. Right. So you don't necessarily have to argue all the time. You don't necessarily have to be right all the time. It's finding compromises. So I think engaging in discourse is a lot more important. I say something, you respond. I say something, you respond. And we find a common ground. And no matter how different we may be, commonalities will always be there. And it's about identifying those commonalities to drive our agenda forward. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Even this is the misconception. And this is what you told Star Online as well. Debating is not about arguing in a single debate room. It's about coming up with solutions and making the world a better place. Do you find that politics is probably the best avenue in which debatings can actually find real change in the real world? Uh, to be honest, it, it, it's not just politics, right? Um, politics is one of the many, many avenues. Uh, we've seen many debaters uh, entering the education world, bringing their own changes. We've seen uh, debaters entering the corporate world, shaping corporate culture, and then giving more opportunities to others. So, Politics is definitely one of the important sectors, uh, but it shouldn't be seen as the only one. However, I think in Malaysia, uh, there is a greater calling for us to have a lot more debaters. Uh, it's not just debaters, but young people, right? Um, debaters are very critical. They're very outspoken. Um, and we need a lot more uh, young people who are outspoken and critical to be in politics, to join any political party. It doesn't matter. In the end, it's a race to the top, hopefully to the top and not to the bottom. But once we get people uh, who are a lot more critical-minded, I think that's when we're able to shape a political culture in Malaysia, which is a lot more uh, reconciliatory, which is a lot more progressive, uh, and which is driven by young people, not just by the same faces for decades. But what about those who say that debate is an elitist sport, meaning it's it's favorable to those who already have a good command in English, who already have great education, or maybe they were in private school. Do you think debating is still very accessible to those who are in maybe your average middle-income households? Mm. I think that, that may be true for other countries. But in Malaysia, I and you yourself know, a lot of the best debaters in Malaysia come from middle-class families. Uh, that they are not 
the champions at a very young age. Uh, they may not be the best of the best in primary or secondary school debating, but because they put in so much effort, they're hardworking, diligent, uh, that's when they're able to climb up a lot faster and in the end dominate the world. Um, I and you yourself know that UITM Sha'alam was once yeah. number two in the world. In the world. I mean, and the two representatives were not like sons and daughters or millionaires or billionaires. They're from middle-class families, trained really hard, and in the end, beat the best of debaters from Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Sydney, Monash, all the best universities. And they're from UITM, Sha'alam. So it clearly shows that uh, the, the, the notion that debating is only for elites is, is untrue. Um, however, can we do better to be inclusive? Definitely we can. And that's why I believe debating should not just be among the best of universities, public universities, the best of, 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 of high schools or, or boarding schools. I think it should be institutionalized uh, in all schools um, so that in the end, it's not just about debating, but it's about public speaking, confidence building, uh, critical thinking. I think these are values which young people can pick up a lot. Yeah, because when you make it more accessible at a younger age, that sport becomes a lot less intimidating. Even yeah. I was very intimidated before I joined debate. I think it was for you as well. You spoke very openly about this, that you didn't have the best English when mm -hmm. you were growing up, despite having your mom being an English teacher. teacher. And so and look at where you are now. And I, I'm really, really grateful that you're continuously breaking that myth and misconception. So we're going to move on to your political career now. So you co you actually co-founded Bersatu in 2016, when you were just 23 years old, before yeah. winning Moore's parliamentary seat in 2018. And then being appointed as the Youth and Sports Minister at the young age of 25, I believe the youngest age anyone has been a minister in Malaysia. Now you have co-founded Muda, with one of the party's aims being to ensure youth representation in the party's leadership and candidacy. Even at such a young age, you have had an illustrious career in politics. What are some of your biggest challenges from the whole experience? Mm. I think one of the biggest challenges was at the beginning of my political career. Um, when I was about to co-found uh, Besatu, um, I was 23 years old then, uh, still in university, completing my law degree. Um, and immediately when I was named as a co-founder of Besatu, uh, there were a lot of brickbats. Um, especially when Bersatu was a traditionally mono-ethnic party. Uh, so people saying, ah, among the Malay community, usually they respect those who are much older. How could a 23-year-old be a co-founder? How can a 23-year-old lead the youth wing of a political party with Tun Dr. Mahdi and Tan Shumudin Yassin, former and current prime minister? Um, however, I think the best way to dispel uh, uh, the myth that young people can't lead is to prove them wrong through our actions. And uh, interestingly, while Bersatu is a, a, a new party then, about 55% of the total membership were made up among young people, men and women, uh, who were young. Uh, and the majority of them never joined any political party before, which showed that there is hope. Um, and even moving beyond that, uh, obviously being young and still in university, um, and also being under a government which never changed ever in Malaysia's history, there were a lot of uh, threats uh, and also offers uh, coming in so that I I abandoned the course. Uh, it was on threats on me, I'll take it. It's quite common. But on my mom, who's a teacher and, 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 and about to retire, to me that was uncalled for, on my brother, on my father, um, very personal in nature. However, 
I think usually these kind of traps make us stronger because it shows that there's even a greater need for us to keep on driving forward to ensure that no one else will ever face uh, the same thing again. Um, so I think the experience which I had before election to me was priceless. I learned so much in that two years uh, of uh, co-founding Besatu before elections. And then um, when I was a minister, it was, I mean, uh, a, a complete privilege being able to serve, being able to translate my idealism into concrete uh, policies. Um, but now is the next challenge, right? Um, I think one of the biggest challenges I faced was uh, last year, February uh, mm -hmm. 2020, before the change in government, when uh, I was stuck in between both of my mentors. Uh, Tan Sri Mudin Yassin, uh, the Prime Minister who, who actually put me into politics and also uh, Tun, to Dr Mahade, uh, the Prime Minister who I worked with. Um, so it's very tough uh, because these are two figures who I respect deeply and still respect uh, despite political differences. Uh, respect must always be there. Um, however, I think principles must matter more. Uh, so when I made the call not to join uh, government, um, and then subsequently getting sacked uh, by the party which I helped co-founded. It was painful because I worked so hard uh, to build this party. I want this party to be a reform-based party which can push uh, Malays out of their merit and to also prove that um, that we can move forward together as Malaysians. Um, so it was a tough time. Uh, no regrets. I learned a lot from it. But that was definitely one of the most difficult decisions I had to make. Do you feel like Muda is a more a representation of your principles as well as an alignment of the values that you stood for? Yeah, definitely. So I feel a lot more comfortable uh, in Muda. So it's not a youth-exclusive party. It's open to all. I think our oldest member is 87 years old. Um, however, all of them believe in reforms. They believe in multiracialism. They believe in moderation. Uh, they believe in in uh, inequitable distribution of wealth. Um, so we share a lot of common ideals. And the majority of them are those who have never joined uh, uh, mainstream politics before. But they are successful in their own ways. We have people like Cikgu Ayu, who's the founder of Skola Chowkit. Uh, we have people like uh, Saudara Rodi and also Nadir, who, um, who have been on the top economic council of Malaysia together with the prime minister and ministers. Uh, we have people from all backgrounds who have been very successful in their own ways, but now wanting to contribute in shaping a new political culture in Malaysia. So for Muda, it's a lot more of a marathon. It's not meant to be just for this election. Uh, we want to reset Malaysian politics. Um, and um, if it takes a long time, let it be. But we must work the ground today. Yeah, you're playing the long game. <laughs> Yeah. So in all of your experience since you know coming into the scene at 23, what would be your biggest takeaways from the whole experience? If there's any advice that you want to give to those who mm. want to join maybe Muda or be in part of the political process, mm. what would your advice be? I think the most important thing is to always follow the heart. Um, there's a line which I always use, whenever I feel depressed and when I'm confronted with difficult decisions, when the heart is in the right place, all will go well. And I believe in that deeply um, because the heart is also a reflection of our moral conscience. And there will be times in which we will be confronted with some of the toughest of decisions, um, like in February last year, whether uh, to join government and then to keep my ministerial portfolio and the perks which come with it, 
or to go into complete political wilderness um, um, because that means I'm out of my party, being expelled and sacked. But when the heart feels right, you follow it. You know that's your gut feeling. You know that that's your moral conscience. Follow it because uh, while the decision may be seen to be painful at the beginning, but at least you'll be able to sleep well. At least you know that your conscience is clear uh, and that you will be able to do the long game. It's not, not everything is about temporary benefits, which may be good uh, at the beginning, but in the end may destroy you in the future. So I think this one big takeaway is to always follow the heart because when the heart is in the right place, all will go well. That's good yeah. advice. Because like, can you live with your decision at the end of the day if you forego all of your principles? From the beginning, when you want to get into this, you have to know what your ideals are and you have to know where you stand. Because in such, it's a wild, wild west, the politics. If you don't know who you are and what you stand for, you'll just be swayed by all of the different things that people can force you or convince you to do. And we're going to end the guest guide segment there. So now we're going into the next segment, which is deep discussion. This is where we do a deep dive on issues relevant to and applicable to our guest experience as well as expertise. As a youth advocate, let's look at some data set regarding youth-related issues in Malaysia. So in September 2020, the Ministry of Higher Education said 75,000 out of 300,000 fresh graduates are expected to be unemployed in 2021. Further, 41,161 out of 330, 557,000 graduates from 2019 are still unemployed. Youth unemployment rate is at 12%. Even in 2019, a study by the Labour Force Survey found that there were 1.13 million underemployed graduates doing SPM qualification jobs. What are your opinions on this issue? See, there are two parts, right? There is uh, youth unemployment and underemployment. Both are, to me, the biggest issues which are plaguing young people. Um, but to me, the bigger problem is underemployment. Um, because if you look at the unemployment level in Malaysia, I mean, prior to COVID, it's about 3.3%, which is still relatively low. Youth unemployment was about 10.7%. Uh, during COVID, it increased uh, a few percentage points. But relative to our neighboring countries, uh, even to some developed countries, it's not that far off. However, I think the biggest problem is underemployment, where you see a lot of university graduates working SPM job, earning really low salaries, which in the end, hamper their ability to move forward, to take care of their families, to build a family of their own. Um, and I think that's a very big problem. That's where you see a lot of people with degrees uh, being forced to enter into the gig economy and not the high, high end or top chain gig economy jobs, but these are those with a computer, a computer engineering degree, but bringing crap. Not to say mm. that, 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 that it's a bad job uh, or it's a job which you should look down to. It's just that the potential which the person has is a lot more. And the person has invested so much money in getting that degree and the government has invested so much money, but there are just not enough job opportunities created. I think if we look at the research done by Khazana Research Institute and by Dr. Muhammad Khalid, one, one of Malaysia's economic experts, out of 100 jobs uh, created, less than 10% of those jobs are for high-income jobs. The majority oh, no. are for majority of jobs created, almost 70%, are for menial, low-skilled, labor-intensive jobs, which again, will not be appealing to young people because this is where a lot of foreign workers work at. This is where wage suppression is at. So it becomes very hard for young people to join those jobs and even if they do they get paid really low despite coming in with a good education level 
So moving forward, I think there are critical things in which we need to do in the long term really is about removing uh, over-reliance on foreign workers and driving into automation, which will then create more quality jobs. The point is it must be a concerted effort between government, private sector, and also graduates will play a very important role in shaping how we move forward. So my opinion on this, I think unemployment is one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problems, which uh, our generation will face. Uh, I'm still optimistic that we will be able to overcome it, especially now COVID has accelerated the drive for automation and for more tech-based solutions. And hopefully, once we recover from COVID, the economic recovery uh, will be able to create more high-quality jobs and move us away from a low-income economy. Do you think it's a mismatch of like what the university is teaching as well as what the economy demands? Or do you think it's just it's huge structural changes that we need to make within our economy to cater to higher-income jobs? Yeah. Or do you think we can improve education as well? To be honest, Ayan, I think it's, it's both. Um, uh, universities definitely need to match uh, with what uh, private sector want. But at the same time, to blame universities alone won't do because at times when universities teach the right subjects, uh, in the hopes that there will be high quality jobs at the end, the supply is not there. So mm. they, 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 they come out with some of the best of graduates. However, when these graduates are out, there's simply not enough high quality jobs to, to cater to the incoming batch of uh, new graduates. So I think it's, it's private sector driven. It's also about getting the right FDIs into Malaysia so that there's genuine economic stimulation and no longer reliance on, on, uh, on foreign labor uh, to resolve things. The days in which we only compete with uh, Vietnam or Indonesia based on how low we can pay is over. Now we yeah. should actually be looking uh, uh, to no longer just compete about wages, but it's a lot more of our skill sets. It's a lot more about what we can offer, like Singapore, right? Despite the fact that land there is a lot more expensive, a business entry point is a lot more expensive. However, people know that their growth opportunity there is better. They have enough. They have a huge talent pool. And that's why a lot of high-quality jobs end up going uh, to Singapore. So Malaysia must transition out from a labor-intensive economy to one which is more tech and automation-based. Yeah, and when we do that, what it does is also it prevents this whole brain drain phenomenon that is still occurring till today because our talented graduates are not finding the jobs that they want. So they need to look elsewhere for those jobs. So our next data set is in 2017, a public opinion survey involving 604 respondents aged 21 to 30 found that 70% of them were disinterested in politics. In mm. March 2017, statistics from the Election Commission showed that out of the 3.8 million eligible Malaysians who had not registered registered to vote, two-thirds were aged 21 and 30. However, since then, the voting age has been reduced to 18 with tremendous bipartisan support and Malaysia held its first digital parliament that saw 222 youth representatives speaking and nearly 6,300 young Malaysians applying. How do you reconcile between the two data sets and how would you gauge the political participation among youth today? Yeah, I think what we face in 2017 is almost the same today, uh, where there's great pessimism, disenchantment, uh, political fatigue among young people when they look at power struggles, same political elites dominating and trapping Malaysian politics. However, the reason why I'm optimistic, I witnessed uh, our generation in 2017, but immediately how they like scale up in 2018 and 
came out in trolls during election. So while young people can be very disenchanted, but when there is a calling for them to act, they will act. Uh, and because it was the same data point which was uh, presented to me, I remember uh, end of 2017, to say, oh, young mm. people will not care about politics, they will not turn up to vote. Uh, elections will still be determined by those who are 40 years and above. But to the surprise of the skeptics, it was young people who were queuing in line, waiting for hours during election day, which then ended up creating history for Malaysia. Young people were the key makers of last election where there was a historic change. I think moving forward, it will be the same. So uh, obviously we can do better uh, in terms of, uh, uh, because if you look at turnout level uh, among the youth was exceptionally high, but these are for registered voters. As you rightfully pointed out, there are about 3.8 million who are still unregistered. I think we there must be an activation of those groups so that they will end up caring and will end up uh, voting. So I think that's why the base point then, uh, when I reduce the voting age from 21 to 18, is that it will come together with automatic voter registration, AVR, which is uh, expected to be completed in July 2021. Um, so hopefully that will reduce the barrier, barrier point and in the end enable for more people to vote and therefore making the youth voter block a much more powerful uh, voter block. So I think uh, yeah, while the, 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 the data set may reflect a negative or pessimistic view towards young people and their disenchantment in politics, I think when the time comes, the time comes and young people will uh, speak up. Will be called to action, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even yourself said, Persatu, 55%, even when you founded it in 2016, yeah. were very young. If you look at your Muda party as well, you can see that the youth really mobilizing yeah. to ensure that they are participating in the political process. But despite the voting age being reduced, we still have a lot of naysayers and people saying that not just that youth will not come out and vote, but rather they don't have the capacity to make the right decision. Mm. I find that absolutely abhorrent. But yeah. what do you say to those naysayers? People who say that young people don't know who to vote. They're not informed. They don't know what's happening. I mean, this is Malaysia. It's, it's our country together. And it's a country in which young people will inherit from, our, from, from the older generation. And if anything, it is our future which is at stake. If the cost of living skyrockets, young people suffer. If education level uh, uh, weakens, young people suffer. If there's a lack of opportunity in the job sector, young people suffer. If we don't take care of climate change, young people suffer. So we acknowledge that young people have the most to lose if anything wrong happens, but yet we choose to continuously disenfranchise them. And since when is uh, voting right a privilege based on intellect? If that is the case, I mean, what do you say to the 80 or 90 year olds who, who, who may not follow the news as much uh, who may be uh, who may have left politics almost completely, but we still accord them the right to vote because this is their right. Since when do we accord a right to vote based on maturity, experience, intellect, or your or your credentials? You have a degree or master. A right to vote should be based on your inherent right as a human being and someone young who's eighteen years old who can already do so many things. You can get married. You can sign a contract. You can do so many things when you're 18, but suddenly when it comes to voting, which comes once every five years, suddenly you are immature, weak, and incompetent. I think that's wrong. Young people can and should be given the right to vote. 
and should be given a say in shaping how Malaysia uh, uh, moves forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not a privilege, it's a right, yeah. regardless of how we choose to exercise that right. Yeah. And democracy is a reflection of the majority and that means being inclusive of our youth. And as you as we can see that we are a formidable voting bloc, the youth. So now we're going to go into our third data set. So in Malaysia, the 2019 National Health and Morbidity Survey noted that 424,000 youths and children suffered from mental health problems. Since the lockdown measures were imposed, the Ministry of Health has received a high number of psychosocial-related calls regarding mental health. Students are faring the worst, especially those sitting for SPM and STPM. With your hashtag Swaruplaja Padlet Board receiving over 1,000 responses where students expressed their worries about returning to school and sitting for exams, some of them were so heartbreaking. So mm. I read some of those messages. Do you think mental health is an issue that should be tackled better? And is students' voices a consideration sh- that should be better taken into account when governments make policies? 110%. I mean, um, I think mental health will be one of the biggest uh, challenges which our generation will face. And it's not just, I mean, there's a misperception that this is just an urban issue. It's not. It's uh, wide-ranging. It affects those in urban, including those in rural centres. It affects everyone, regardless of race and religion. So it is a very big issue, which is confronting our generation. I think when we look at the plight of SPM students, we can clearly see that, right? Not only are they under tremendous stress, not only are they confused because of continuous changes in SOPs. Um, At the same time, they feel as if they have nowhere else uh, to go and their future uh, is hanging by a thread. So I think moving forward, as a country, we must take mental health a lot more seriously. I remember uh, advocating for us to have a carve-out specialized mental health budget in every single uh, budget announcement so that every government will be able to benchmark regardless of, of whether it's government A, B or C, but, the, but people will benchmark. This year, mental health uh, allocation is about 50 million, next year is 60 million, and how we spend it is greater accountability, transparency. But the point is to mainstreamize mental health discussions so that people know that this is not a stigma and a taboo. I mean, I still hear stories uh, of university students when they go to their university clinics uh, saying that they have a, a, a breakdown or suffering from depression. Then they get turned back and say, ah, this is just you trying to uh, get a free pass or you trying to get uh, an, an, an MC so that you can skip classes. Well, in reality, these are people who actually suffer and, and, uh, and, and deserve our support. So if we don't make mental health uh, a national issue and if there's not enough support structure placed to assist us, my fear is uh, that we will drive them out and uh, we'll make the situation much, much worse. So moving forward, this is not a partisan, a political issue. This is a national issue which must all come together in the smallest to the biggest of ways, in the smallest of ways, at least through our own circles to be a lot more attentive uh, uh, and to listen to concerns and issues shared by family members and friends or on the national level to ensure that there's a better and, uh, 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 budget allocation for mental health issues, there's more upskilling and reskilling for mental health uh, practitioners in schools, universities and the like, so that in the end it becomes a concerted national strategy in addressing mental health. Why do you think 
mental health is still such a taboo subject or it's still so stigmatized that I think a lot of the older generations still don't think that it's an actual problem. That is something that the youths are now having an issue, but it's just, you know, they'll say, just suck it up. Yeah. I think because they, a, a lot of those who I talk to who, who disbelieve mental health, they think this is not even a health issue. It's just uh, young yeah. people bring drama kings and drama queens. And and I've heard that many times. Oh, Sadiq, during uh, during my time, I went through so much pressure. I didn't suffer from all of this. What like you guys are like a bunch of like drama queens. Many times uh, I I've I've heard that. But in reality, it's very very different. And this is not something new. Even people back then had uh, suffered from anxiety attacks and depression. It's just that uh, in terms of the science behind it, we were not quick enough. But it doesn't mean that it didn't exist. So now that we know, we owe a moral duty to help people out, uh, and we must. Thank you so, so much for sharing that. Okay, so now we're going to our last segment, which is yep. Radical Roleplay. This is actually my favorite segment. Yep. This is where we provide guests with imagined scenarios where they would have to use their communication skills to resolve. So today we have, of course, some youth empowerment scenarios for you. Are you ready, Sadiq? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, scenario one. So one of the... Participants of Parliament Digital, Yodin, a fictional character, but, but he was very inspired and empowered to join the political process and was thrilled about the voting age being lowered. However, with the amount of infighting happening with political parties, continued backdoor politicking and the recent declaration of emergency, Yodin is now more frustrated and disenchanted about politics. He feels completely apathetic and disinterested. So you want to convert, convert his frustration into action. What do you tell him? So pretend I'm Yodin. Mm, okay. And I came to you. We're like, why be? <laughs> what do I do? I I I don't believe in politics anymore. What do you say to him? Yeah, you're in the same people who you despise for operating backdoor politics, the politics of divisions, revenge. The same people who cause your political disenchantment and political apathy want you to continue to remain disenchanted. They want you to not care. They want you to tune out and give up. Because the more you give up, the more powerful they get, the more they can consolidate their power. So my advice uh, to you, Odin, is never give up. Instead, channel that disgust, that, that the anger to something more positive. Let us build a coalition and a movement which is long-lasting so that in the end, that disgust can be translated translated into passion, into idealism, so that we will be able to build Malaysia together, so that we will be able to move Malaysia together, that just because we're young, in no way does that mean that we are weak and incompetent, that when we're young, we are passionate, we love our country, this is our country together, in which we will build together. And I'm very sure, Yudin, if we come together, we will be able to remove the apathy, we will be able to remove the anger which is so deep in you, and change that into genuine progress and passion. And when you are in that position, you will be able to build Malaysia and the policies which you will implement, Yodin, will be able to impact generations to come. So my advice, do not give up, buckle up, and let's keep on marching forward. Thank you so much. Oh, your dad is your dad is completely convinced. All right, uh, let let me join. Let me sign up for Muda now. <laughs> Doesn't matter what the ROS says. I mean. <laughs> 
Thank you so much. I actually Thank have a friend you. called Yodin, and he he he's a, he's a fan of yours. So this will actually go. This is actually for him. Please <laughs> please send him my warmest regards. <laughs> All right. So now we have scenario two. All right. So pretend you have given your thunderbolt class on public speaking, which is the yep. third class after critical thinking. It is the Q and A portion of the class, and you notice a consistent trend in the questions posed to you. And this centered around participants having a lack of confidence to speak and express themselves. Many of the participants think that their opinions don't matter. Or they're not good enough to even mm. vocalize. Right before ending the session, you want to motivate them to be more confident and empowered. What do you say to all of your participants in Thunderbolt? Hmm. Does Does this person have a name or like is this a? No, this is so everybody uh, keeps uh, asking you about. Oh, but I don't have anything to say. Why be? Oh, mm. what I say don't matter. Bukan yu pandai sangat pun. So at the end, you're like, why are everybody so not confident about their views? So it's more of like a closing message, and it's understood. to the class. Hmm. I mean, I'll share. I'll share my story when I when I first joined uh, debating. I remember confronting uh, a really good team from SDF, Sekolah Tun Fatima. And these are three beautiful ladies going against three random guys from Royal Military College. <laughs> and I remember they were so good and overwhelming that we were thrashed by far. We lost really badly. And I remember only having, uh, only mastering the courage to speak for less than one minute. Uh, which was my introduction and some blabbering, and then I stopped. And I knew that that was me at the bottom, uh, that I was a scary cat. I didn't dare to speak. I couldn't speak well, especially in front of, 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 of women. Um, but <laughs> um, I knew from that day onward, I wanted to improve myself. And it's actually good that you feel, uh, or at least you notice that there is a weakness in you, that you are scared, and that you suffer from stage fright, that's good. Because that means that you are conscious of your weaknesses. The best thing to do then is to convert that fear into your strength, that you use it towards your advantage, that you know that you are weak, then work hard to ensure that you will be able to overcome it. For myself, when I knew I was at rock bottom, I knew I wanted to get better, I worked really hard. Even in the, even in the most weirdest of ways, I'll speak in front of a mirror, uh, whenever I get the opportunity to ask a question in public, even if that question is the worst of questions, I will ask it just so that I will be able to improve my confidence. People may laugh at me, but they'll laugh now. But slowly, I know personally, I'm getting better and better. So there's no perfect way uh, to move forward. But in the end, it's already good that you acknowledge that you have uh, uh, some flaws. Now it's just about building uh, from there onward. And I'll be sure to be there with you as you get better. Oh, yeah. that's so nice. I mean, and especially since they've joined the Thunderbolt classes, right? Exactly. They're already taking that first step. And I love the fact that you're like, in fact, this is a humbling experience. You never lose that humility. I think even now, a lot of people think that great speakers don't get nervous or there's nothing to learn if you're already a great speaker. But I think as a good example from you, you're always advocating about self-improvement and self-development yeah. as well as bettering yourself. And I yeah. love the fact in all of your speeches, you're so candid about your <laughs> lack of English, about being trashed by another school. <laughs> I'll never That's forget really, that. Really... I'll never forget. <laughs> 
it's really important to break this like image that yeah. you are on this high pedestal that you yeah. were born like advocating and speaking yeah. so thank you thank you so so much for sharing so at the end of the episode and i always do this with all my guests i ask them why they seek to speak now yeah. seek Seeking to speak just basically means why you advocate or why you do the things that you do. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you the same question. Why be Said Sadiq? Why do you seek to speak? Because I believe that our lives are interconnected to one another. Um, the fact that we feel sad when we see a person suffering from pain or someone living below the poverty line shows that we all share that level of connectivity that we succeed together and we will feel that failure together. And when we acknowledge that, that we know that we live in a society, in a community, that we are in this together, we owe a moral duty to help one another to move forward together. Um, So I speak or I speak up because I believe that it will be good, not just for me, but for all of us, And that when we succeed as a community, we will succeed together. Um, And my hopes is that maybe today it's me speaking up, but who knows 10, 20 years down the road, when I'm on the losing end, there will be another person who will speak up for me. Because in the end, again, we all acknowledge that our lives are interconnected and we are all in this together. And that's the beauty of a community and that level of interconnectivity. So let's keep on speaking up for each other because this is our Malaysia together. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so, so much. That was so inspiring. We are, I love the fact that everything that you do goes back to your heart, goes back to your moral principles. And at the end of the day, it really drives you that moral duty to do something about it, to speak up. Because how can you live with yourself if you don't use your power and your voice? Thank you so, so much, YB. Thank you, Ayin. Please call me Sadiq, by the way. I'm like from just a YB and never heard this YB for mine. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it's really weird for me too. But okay, it's good to see that you have not changed. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ayn. I appreciate All it. Right. Once, once MCO is done, let's, let's catch up. Mm. Yeah, totally. Let's catch up. Let's totally catch up. Okay. Mm.